Welcome to The Alternative Investor, the show where we discuss, debunk, and demystify all things about investing in alternative assets. Okay, Brad, today we're going to talk about an actual real-life example of a private equity deal. I am so excited. This is going to be fun. So we're going to share with you, um, you know, we've already talked about what an alternative asset is. We've talked about why you should invest in alternative assets, and we've told you how to find an alternative asset deal. Today we're going to talk about a real live example, one that I was the sponsor on uh, a few years back. And what's the sponsor again? The sponsor is the person who finds the deal, arranges the financing, and is somehow responsible for operating or managing that deal to make sure it's successful for all its investors. Good answer. I, I kind of just made that up. Is that, did that, that sound that right? That sounds right. You sounded <laughs> confident, too, when you said it. So. All right, good. Uh, so we're going to talk about a company called Birdwell Beach Bridges. Uh, Birdwell Beach Bridges was a family-owned business. It was started in 1961 in Santa Ana, California, and it's an old surf brand. So it's, uh, you know, Brad, these are board shorts, jackets, bags that uh, surfers have worn and loved for over 55 years. I'm not exactly their target customer because I've uh, never been surfing a day in my life. But oh, it is up. They make a beautiful board short. Well, you look good in them. I've seen, I've, <laughs> I've seen. There's nothing sexier than an upper man's uh, thighs in, in board shorts for sure. Yeah. So Birdwell was a great brand. It, it, it was beloved by surfers for generations. Um, it had sort of been mismanaged by the family through the later years. It was started in 1961. By the grandma, the daughter took it over, and she did a heck of a job running it through the through the '90s, and then the grandkids took it over. Um, and so I, you know, this is a business that we identified that we thought was valuable. Um, yeah, I had a partner in this deal, and basically, I went in and I approached the owners. I, I walked into the factory. I had my pregnant wife with me, and I asked them if they wanted to sell. You did you bring your pregnant wife into the? You left her in the car. No, she came in. Oh, okay, I, I think it helped. Uh, it helped the story. You weren't just some ruthless private equity guy. You were, you know, hey, I'm a family man. <laughs> I was just a guy with a pregnant wife. <laughs> it wasn't even clear she was my wife. <laughs> so you know, that's so that's how we found the deal. Um, eventually, the owners did agree to sell, and that's when we we, we had to agree an evaluation for the business, um, which is tricky. Yeah, always tricky, and in any industry it's tricky but it's especially tricky in private equity when you know small companies it's not exactly like there's a published research paper of comps of all the birdwell or the board short companies in america what they sell for yeah exactly i mean it was you know i i find that the seller always wants more money than the buyer is willing to pay. Yeah, go figure. Does that seem reasonable? Yeah, I that's, think that's pretty consistent across every asset class. Yeah, but it, but eventually we did agree an evaluation, and um, at that point, it's like, okay, there's a deal to be done here, um, and we wanted to bring in our friends and family. So we we socialized the deal in our network. We said, hey guys, we you know we've got this deal under LOI, a letter of intent, which means we have the exclusive right to do the due diligence on the deal and purchase it. Uh, and that's when we started talking to the folks in our network to see if they wanted to invest. Nice. Kind of going back to the family, this is pretty common. I, I've seen in a lot of different industries with family businesses where you you have the patriarch or the matriarch that founds the company. They pass it on to their their uh, their sons or daughters, right? And then when it gets to that third generation, for whatever reason, uh, they're just the family's you know less attached to the business. Things start to go a little sideways. There's too many people involved. Then all of a sudden, they're willing to sell. Well, yeah. W- w- I mean, would you want to live in your grandmother's house? I mean, <laughs> would, 
would you want to wear your grandmother's clothes? I mean, this was their grandmother's business, right? So, it's um, a good point. Yeah, they were they were open to it. But you know, so we felt really lucky because it was it was a coveted brand. It was a wonderful brand. It was a great product, and, and we really felt like it was a valuable company. So then, what we did was we went out to our friends and family. We explained what the deal was. We explained the company. And we asked them if they wanted to invest, and that's when you know I guess that's when the due diligence period began, both you know both our due diligence, my due diligence on the company itself, and our investors' due diligence in our plan and in the company itself as well. Did you find that there were some of your quote friends and family that just you know they heard you were doing this, and because they believe in you and you've had a great success in prior careers, they just kind of wrote a check and didn't ask too many questions. Yeah, you know, definitely not my family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's good. So my family probably thought I was crazy, but no, you know, I so I approached a few of my friends. Uh, my partner approached his network as well, and um, yeah, my friends were were super excited about it. They, you know, they knew about the business. They trusted me. They, you know, we had a personal relationship, so they didn't. I don't think they thought that I was going to abscond with their money to Mexico or anything like that. Yeah, that's good. But yeah, they you know to be fair to them, they did do their due diligence. Um, you know, we put together a financial plan of what we thought the business would do over the next two or three years. Uh, you know, what the revenues were going to be, what the expenses were going to be, what our plan was to achieve those revenues. And I had conversations with each and every one of those investors about that. And so that you know, they did do their due diligence. It wasn't a really formal process. So there wasn't like an investment deck, or there was more just a pro forma, just a, an Excel model. Yeah, you know, we didn't put together a formal deck. I, I think for, probably for bigger deals or for deals that maybe you were going to go outside your your core friends and family. I, I think you know people definitely do do that, but you know we didn't. And I think that's probably true for a lot of smaller deals. Bread or a lot of deals that you know are done just with friends and family. I, I think there's less of an expectation to put together formal marketing materials. Yeah, and there's less of a requirement from the SEC as the sponsor, right? If you're going to friends and family, you know these people. You don't need to put this giant package together that has you know 30 pages of risk disclosures. If you're going to people you know, uh, generally speaking, the SEC is a little more lenient on what you're disclosing and these people, you know, how they're putting their money into your deal. Uh, but you do need to be careful if you are the sponsor, making sure that, you know, you're, you are disclosing that, hey, this isn't a guaranteed investment, but yeah, it's yeah. a lower bar. What are the rules on that? I mean, does the SEC require you to, to put together a, a formal PPM if you're going to market the deal? Or I guess PPM stands for what? Uh, yeah, they don't technically require it. It's more of a just a best practice kind of safe harbor where if you're presenting a, what's called a PPM, which is a private placement memorandum, and the PPM is this big package that you know tells everybody about the deal, tells you how things could go wrong, how, how things could go right, tells you what happens, uh, you know, if uh, you know you decide to recapitalize the deal, how the mechanics of that works, right? So it gets into the weeds on how this investment's going to be run, and it generally includes. You know, three documents. There's the PPM, which is kind of the big overall package uh, that goes into the executive summary. Um, you know, the risks of the deal. Then there's the operating agreement, which is really like uh, you know the instruction manual on the company. What happens if you know X goes down? What happens if Y goes down? Uh, how are the profits split? And then there's the subscription agreement, which is the investor agreeing to sign up for the investment and uh, attesting that they are uh, an accredited investor, which we've talked about in previous episodes, which is just, you know, you have a net worth of over a million or you make over 200,000 uh, as a single individual or 300,000 as a married couple. Yeah. Are people always honest on those, Brad? 
No, they are not. It's, it's surprising how easy it is to just be like, yeah, I'm, a, I'm an accredited investor. Here you go. Well, there's actually two thresholds uh, for, there's two types of investments. One uh, is a 506C, which we're, you know, we're getting in the weeds here, but you have to verify under a 506C that you are accredited. So you have to share your tax documents, you know, financial returns. Or if it's a, a 506B, then it's just a uh, an investor is just attesting that they are accredited. So you just put your hand up and say, "Yes, I am." And what what would be a deal? Where what are the characteristics of a deal that requires the this five hundred six B versus the C? Yeah, the C versus B. The only real difference is uh, a sponsor advertising the oh, the investment uh, versus just talking to friends and family. So if somebody's got a website, you know that kind of talks about the offering at all, they're going to want to go on under what's called a five hundred six C. And then you, as the investor, would have to verify your income or your net worth in order to qualify for that investment. Gotcha. Nevertheless, the friends and family that we did contact, they were in. Um, they they liked the deal. They liked the company. They believed in our plan to run it. Uh, they trusted me as CEO to step in and operate the business. Uh, and so then, yeah, well, then we got into the legal docs. And so I think we sent out... Um, the operating agreement, right? So this is an LLC, a limited liability corporation. So there's an operating agreement that governs uh, sort of all the legalities of, of running that business and setting it up. Uh, so they signed as members of that agreement, uh, of members of that LLC. There was a subscription agreement, right? Where uh, they basically kind of indicated that they were accredited investors and they indicated how many shares they wanted. Um, and I think that was it. <laughs> it's a pretty, yeah. It was pretty simple. Yeah, it was all done over email and DocuSign, and so you know people signed the documents and then they wired the money in, um, and then when it came time to close the deal, we you know we basically wired the money to the sellers and we physically showed up at the business and signed all the documents, and believe it or not, Brad, they they only stuck around like three or four days to show me the ropes, and then they were out of there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure during the due diligence process, they're like, oh yeah, we're going to help with the transition. It's going to be smooth. You know, Our grandfather built this, so we, we want to see it in good hands. And then they cashed the check, and they you know, couldn't be found. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I think they did say they were going to stay a week, so they stayed four days. I remember it became really real for me on day one when I sat down, and um, the former owner walked up and handed me the mail. <laughs> it's like here you go, go ahead and uh, open it. This is your problem now. Yeah, exactly. So um, anyway, so that company continues to operate. Uh, it's doing great. Um, I I ran it for a couple of years. Um, I'm no longer there, but we brought in a great CEO, and uh, he's continuing to crush it. And so, yeah, that, you did a nice job. And it, it, you know, the it's a common theme in in both real estate and private equity. Of you're buying a business from a, a family that just you know they built it a while ago, and they haven't done a lot to modernize the company, right? They're just kind of operating it like it was 1970 still. That's certainly true in, in real estate. Uh, and, you know, Grayson and his team did a great job in, in building a professional website, layering in software, uh, inventory control, just basic, you know, things that you would do if you were starting a business in 2018, you know, but this business was stuck in the 70s. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, there, there were, they were literally, there was literally dust on the shelves um, probably that had been there for 50 years. So yeah, I think Brad. I, I guess the moral of the story here is there's, you know, there's a lot of opportunity in these sort of legacy businesses that have been around a while. They're generating consistent revenue, but you know maybe fresh blood could come in and really increase the revenue and, and juice the returns for investors. 
And how do you think your investors got comfortable with the the valuation, given that there's not you know a lot of comps, it's not easy to figure out you know what the going rate is for these things? Yeah, I mean that's a good question. The valuation of the business or the, the amount of money that you're going to pay for it, it's always tough, right? The seller always has their expectations. The buyer wants to pay as little as possible. Ultimately, I think what our investors got comfortable with, you know, one, they trusted us. They trusted that we had sort of done our research on the market and knew what other companies had traded for in similar ranges. Uh, and then, you know, I think in terms of looking through our financial model and the plan that we had for the business and belief that we were going to grow it, you know, they got comfortable with the number we were going to pay. Okay. So if I was one of these investors, I would probably then, I would have asked for uh, your financial projections, maybe the last two years of uh, financials, the, the profit and loss statement. And the balance sheet, because um, presumably you had that, right? Yeah, yeah, we got that as part of the so, uh, purchase. So you could get comfortable then that okay, even as is, this company makes money, and then we're, they're going to you as the new sponsor is going to inject capital into it, execute the business plan, and I feel comfortable as an investor with these assumptions and think that you realistically can pull this off. That's yeah. kind of the analysis that that's going on. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I, you know, if if I were investing in one of these deals I I think I'd probably hammer the sales and marketing plan I I'd, I'd want to see you know whether they had a formal plan or not I'd want to have I'd want to know that they had a very good sense of how they were going to acquire new customers how they were going to market to people to build awareness you know cuz ultimately that's really what's going to bring in the revenue and so I'd, I you know as a former sales guy myself I think I I'd, I'd really want to see that yeah, and I just as an investor myself, I like to look at the assumptions and try to gauge if I feel like it's you know it's reasonable or super aggressive, right? Because you want to stress test these things. I mean, the mod- one thing you can be sure of, whatever the financial model is, the projection of that company, two years later, it's throw that out the window. It's either going to be five times better, you know, two times worse, right? It's never going to be the same. So It'll you want different. It's going to be very different. <laughs> yeah. So you you want to be able to at least stress test it figure out you know where is the is the the model weak where is the the business plan a little susceptible to a surprise right if they're just a, they're planning on growing 50% every year you know over the next 10 years you know that that's probably pretty unrealistic yeah. um, so uh, just a little insider advice and i think what a lot of people do and i i know my dad has done this in deals that he's invested in and frankly honestly i'd probably do it too is if you if you know somebody else is going to be investing in the deal, and you trust that person, and you really think they've done their due diligence, then a lot of a lot, a lot of times other people will be like, "Look, if you know if Bob is in or if Jim is in, and he's a smart guy and he knows you, then yeah, I'm, I'm in too." And I, I'm not advocating well, for that. What happens if Bob was doing the same thing you were doing? Well, then you're in trouble. <laughs> well, this is what venture capital and angel investors do all the time, right? They they see that oh Sequoia's in well let's just throw our money in because yeah. if they're in you know that saves us all kinds of time on yeah. doing due diligence yeah. safety in numbers right yeah. so maybe not the best strategy but one that's certainly employed very I, it's frequently. a shortcut for yeah. sure look we don't have unlimited time if if you are a you know a doctor lawyer whatever investment banker what have you you have your day job and this is a side you know uh, project for you to generate passive income or or you know investment revenue then you don't have time to you know spend you know, 200 hours vetting a particular deal. So those shortcuts can be fruitful, but you probably wouldn't want to make one of those investments, right? You'd probably want to spread those out if you were doing those kind of, you know, due diligence shortcuts. Yeah. Well, and in this investment in particular, the investors had a nice little bonus where they got a discount on all the products that they could buy on the website. So, oh, well. So they're happy. Yeah, I mean. Lots of hats. Sold. <laughs> all right, well, so that, that was an example of a, a private equity deal. 
Uh, maybe next week we'll do real estate. What do you think, Brad? Yeah, sure. Let's get into the real estate. I, I know a thing or two about it, so it should be fun. Yeah, it's going to be riveting. Thanks for listening to The Alternative Investor. Since you've made it this far, you should take a second to subscribe to the podcast and join our email list. There, you'll receive additional insights and insider access to the world of alternative investments. Just visit thealternativeinvestorshow.com.